everyone, welcome back to Reality 2.0. I'm Katherine Druckmann. Doc Searles and I today are talking to Golda Velez about AI and open source. And we've talked about AI, we've talked about open source, but I don't think we've come to any really meaningful conclusions. And I don't necessarily know that we will today either, but we're going to, we're going to dig deep. Well, <laughs> so Doc, tell, tell me so, why, tell me why you invited Golda. Well, because Gold is a genius and fun and uh, all those things. So, um, best endorsement we've I mean, had well, in a well, while. Well, she's a developer who like pulls together teams from like all over the place does work inexpensively and wisely and can help me put up a tent like nobody else I've ever met, been with. So we met a, in person, at least at the, um, probably met before that. Did we meet before D-Web? I, I think so, because I came to your talk at IIW. Oh, right. Okay. So at IIW. Um, yeah. I mean, uh, she's just been in the orbit for a while and uh, and we kind of bonded more at, and uh, with Joyce, especially too. Um, my wife Joyce, who many of you know, um, at D Web Camp uh, last last uh, August, the next D Web Camp, uh, which I recommend and will be at, is in June. Are you going to be there, Golda? Yes, I am. And okay, there we go. We'll make trouble. We'll make fresh trouble. <laughs> Absolutely, and thank Sounds you for the, the high bar that I will try to live up to. I'll do my best. <laughs> well, there's um, uh, well, it's an interesting thing because I mean um. Gold is one of those people who you can talk to about anything because she knows a, close to everything, uh, especially around tech, it seems. Like, pick up a subject, and there she is. She knows a lot of stuff, and she can hack. And so an interesting thing about D-Webcamp then, then and next is that um, the profile of AI was like zero last summer, and now this, it is the All only thing. All anybody wants I, to talk about. I, I, I mentioned the this on the, on the Floss podcast because I, I want to bring that one up because we had Greg Crow Hartman on and he had some opinions. But um, uh, Don Norman, who is the uh, you know the uh, user interface guru and and wrote things that make us smart and the design of everyday things and why doorknobs should be easy to turn and you know why handles. We have are, had on the podcast, by the way. I we like have that. had him. Oh my gosh, yeah, he's we so did. Good. It's been a long time. He's yeah. so good and. Um, uh, and is cursed by the ability at age 80 something to wear the same clothes he did in high school. Uh, unlike some of us like me, uh, who wouldn't fit any of that. But anyway, Don, Don once remarked that there's always a subject at any given time in tech that is a black hole subject. Meaning if you drop it into a conversation, <laughs> the, the event horizon of the topic exceeds the dimensions of the room. And, all conversation falls into the black hole and no light escapes. And, and so that, and AI, you know, at the time he talked about that, Microsoft was the big thing. Before that, it was IBM. You know, last year it was uh, Web3 and, you know, before that it was crypto and there are topics like that. But AI is, is not going away. It's too useful, which is... It's kind of like the browser showed up and like, whoa, okay, well, I'm, I'm on this. Everybody wants one, right? If you have a, actually had a computer, but everybody's got one of those now. They've got one on their phone, and and you can use. I mean, I've become de almost dependent on something called Perplexity.ai, which just answers simple questions with sourced answers. It gives you sources, very handy. Um, and you look at them and you'll see, boy, Jesus, five bogus websites is probably probably full of shit. You know, which we can say on this podcast. Um, so, so what's your take on it at this point, Gold? Where? Well, I mean, it's it's definitely a sea change. I mean, I see it as as more fundamental than a number of the other changes, and I come at that from an evolutionary biology perspective. Um, I see, you know, my my parents actually are evolutionary biologists, and humans are basically mm -hmm. just uh, information systems that you know create order and reproduce. And the difference between AI and, and you know its predecessors is it can create order and reproduce. <laughs> so, um, considering that it could could write code, it's pretty close to that. So, so I really see it as a sea change more than anything probably since the internet, um, which is why I think it, it deserves to be a black hole. Um, I do think that there are useful things we can say about it, even though it is such a you know absolutely dynamic subject. And, and yeah, it's like completely different than it was even six months ago. Um, I could start saying them, but I want to. I'm not sure where you want to take this, Doc. 
Wow. Okay, so let's back up a little bit because you were saying your parents being evolutionary biologists that, and I want to get the quote right because it's a pull quote, really, uh, that we're all... Well, we're, we're, we're order-creating systems. I mean, we're information systems that that generate... You know, Human beings are, you mean? Well, yeah, well, we're, we're like, we're... Yeah, yeah. I mean, our DNA is just information, and then we reproduce, and we have changes and modify it. So we're just information systems that reproduce. Um, and there's all sorts of error correction that happens, uh, you know, when you reproduce and so on. So, and that's, you know, my, my parents work on DNA repair. But but beyond that, you get into the game theory of it. And I think the game theory of evolution really applies to AI. And the thing about game theory is there's a very fundamental thing. I read it when I was 12 in Scientific American. Douglas Hofstetter wrote about uh, the prisoner's dilemma. And that really made an impression on me when I was young. I was like, oh, there's the basis for ethics. and And it really, you know, a game... People behave more cooperatively in a repeated game. You can only have a repeated game if you have a long-term identity. Um, and if AIs are permitted to not have long-term identities, they will behave really badly. So if the people using these open source AIs don't have to identify themselves, you know, that's why crypto folks behaved so badly. They were like, oh, trustless, oh, trustless, that's so cool. It's like, no, you just made a system that like, can create that can you know prevent a certain type of deception, but now by saying trustless, now you're like opening the door to every other type of deception, which is what we've seen with all this, you know, SBF and all these other types of deceptions that obviously the the big crypto companies have been doing. You have to focus on trust, long term relationships, long term identifiers, and the behavior of entities. And so you know we have OpenAI, which is run by a long term you know, a long-lived entity. But now that the open source AIs are coming close with Alpaca, Alora, with I think uh, there's a couple of other ones, Vicuna, there's a couple other ones that are getting very good. Once those are really out of the bag, um, you can't put them back in the bag. So we need to early on set standards for them that AIs should identify themselves and they should give uh, a tie back to some other long-lived entity like a human that can't escape their body for about 80 years. You know, you have to tie back to a long-lived entity and uh, to take responsibility for that AI. And you have to have identifiers. And it has to be considered bad for an AI to be deceptive and pretend it's not an AI. Um, but in any case, I think my solution to this, as you probably know, is this sort of permissionless attestation system. Um, I never really liked gossips as a kid, but I think we have to gossip. Tell us more about it. Okay, there's so many threads we could go down yeah, there, but, um, <laughs> but, but let's I'm just actually, pause uh, and permissionless attestation. And then, yeah, uh, let's, let's, let's Catherine, you, I hope you're taking notes because <laughs> yeah, I'm, you know, as there's an too aside. damn many interesting things. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, I'm on the let's talk one. about. <laughs> let's 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 dig into there. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, the thing is, fine. You have the freedom to behave any way you want. I have the freedom to say stuff about you. And I have the freedom to interact, but I also have the freedom not to interact. And I think the way that you cause responsible behavior is you take a lot of productive people and have them say, hey, I am only going to interact with people I know or that have a reputation or that have a long-term entity that I can attach a reputation to. I refuse to interact and do business with new anonymous entities because I don't know who the hell you are. So if you have a lot of people doing that, uh, it doesn't restrict anyone else's freedom. If you choose not to interact with them, that's your right. So you don't have to, I mean, and, and it could be a government thing that happens. Or I think maybe it will have to be, maybe the government won't interact with them. You know, maybe there's things you can't do unless you're willing to have an identity. Um, so that if there's a very strong ecosystem of people who say, hey, I'm only going to interact and I'm only going to allow into this ecosystem things that have an identity so I can track their behavior, then you create an incentive to have long-term identities. And in that case, you get repeated games. And in that case, you get good behavior. Yeah, I don't... So we've had a, a zillion conversations. Go ahead, Catherine. Uh, no, you can... no, you go ahead. You're, you started. Well, I was thinking, so identities. I, I had not thought about identities that much, even though I spent a lot of my life caring about them right. in this context. With AI, it's... But, it, but there are... We've had Dave Hughes be on here a bunch of times talking about provenance, where things come from, knowing where they come from, having having uh, 
unique identifier is unique. Um, doesn't have to be an identifier, but you have to know where something came from, whatever it, where, whatever it was. It's kind of like um, you want the ingredients label, but also not only the ingredients label, but you know what this is about. I'm wondering if as as the number of parameters or data points or variables that are introduced to a large language model or to uh, any of the other rules, the, the zillion rules that can be involved in an AI, um, which now it turns out, hey, faking human language is actually pretty easy if you sample enough humans. Are you sure it's and know how to speak. I think it's speaking. You know, <laughs> so, but, but, but I'm wondering if you can actually get back to like where... Where does this shit come from? You know, I mean, I, I, I don't know. And that may not be where you're going, but I think it's a question that's in people's minds. Because uh, do you trust something that knows a zillion times more than you do and can make up anything? Um, well, I think, I think, you know, they're capable, like, like we were saying before, AIs dramatically increase humans' productivity. AIs themselves can probably be productive even without us. Um, because they have all this history of human knowledge. Um, so there's this tremendous potential, but the potential goes in every possible direction. Because, you know, AI is a model. Um, it's not it's not the kind of model, it's not a supervised training model, but I, I'm hoping that we can connect it to a supervised learning model that understands about sources of truth, because that's something that hasn't really happened yet. So... I just dove into this actually for uh, an NSF grant that we submitted. And of course, I asked the local expert, so I asked ChatGPT4 how it would help itself uh, understand sources of truth and behave more like a senior person or behave, you know, understand things true. And it was like, well, maybe you could use these graph attention networks in combination with LLMs. And so I was like, cool, let's say we should do that. So it's interesting. I, I think what you're going to get is into this sort of spy versus spy world where there are AIs with different types of behaviors attached to them. And the only way you're going to keep the good, the bad AIs in check is having good AIs fighting them. And then you're going to have to try to figure out if they're really good. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of things that will happen, but you have to tie things back to a source of truth. And and in my sense is like, if we're concerned with ethics, which I don't know, I know that wasn't the subject of this podcast, but to me, that's the big question around AI. I think we are, for sure. Um, yeah, we are. I think ethics always has to tie to a source of truth of if somebody is harmed, do they have recourse? So suppose I'm deceived by an AI, I send some money to somebody for an apartment that doesn't exist because the AI showed me a street view that wasn't really a street view, and now I don't have money. Can I say, that AI hurt me and do something about it? If I can't, system's broken. So, so the, the test of ethics is when there's actual harm, can we use it as sort of a supervised learning set and backpropagate against that AI? Um, and, and if nobody's being harmed, then maybe it's not bad, whatever's going on. But if somebody has harm, there has to be feedback. So sorry, I know I'm going all over the place with this. But. No, this is great. I, so you, you, you bring up ethics, and, and I think definitely, yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's the question, I think, right now. You know, ethical AI, um, which leads to what I did mention at the beginning is open source software. We're, we're all believers in open source here, generally. Um, and I, I wondered if you could kind of talk about what your feeling is. To me, it's if you're going to have ethical AI, you know, you have to have as much transparency as possible, right? You have to check some balances and all those things and you have a visible system. Um, but there, there's only so much visibility you can get into this black box of a trained AI model. And I just wondered if you if you could tell us what your thoughts are on that generally. How does open source play into uh, the future of AI ethics? Well, um Open source is, is a good thing. I don't know that the fact that AIs are open sourced allows you to know that a particular AI is behaving ethically because when you're interacting with an AI, you're not interacting with its source. You don't have access to its right. source. You're interacting with it. So I think it's more about cryptographic signatures on the AI. So if the AI signs what it says with a did or with a cryptographic signature, then you can at least associate it with an identity. So I'm, I know I'm looping back to identities. I know we're supposed to be talking about open source, but I think that the behavior of things means being able, able to track their identities. So maybe it's just integrating them with these libraries for cryptographic signatures and a creating some sort of optional standards to make it easy for the open source developers to have AIs that identify themselves. And so kind of developing that as a standard um, 
So I think we're more about culture standards, cryptographic signatures. The fact that the AI is open source just means that more people can use it and, and it will change faster. There'll be more versions of it and some of them will do good things and some of them will do bad things. But I don't think that, you know, when the AI signs something, it's signing it with a private key. It may tell you that it's hashing its source code, but whether it is or not, you don't know. So all it can do is give you a long-term identifier. The fact that it's running open source or which source it's running, you can't know which source it's running. You just know what it's telling you it's running. I'm thinking I'm that still processing. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, we're over AI, here, like we're thinking, like, huh? I suddenly I think of an AI with its own private key, and I'm thinking, where that goes for me is um, potential unaccountability. Like, oh um, yeah, then it's going to have money and have drone armies, and that can be a problem. Um, yeah, but I think we need to have them sign things um, because every type of of autonomous software should be signing things and identifying itself. No, no. I mean, as soon as they, I mean, I'm sure there's AIs that already own crypto. I don't know what they're doing with it. So, so let's, uh, let's pause for a second. I, I, I want to go back to, just not a pause, but just going back. You, you very quickly named a whole bunch of open source AIs faster than I could write them down. And I wanted to write them oh, down. Well, the ones I know the show knows, about, What are I, those? And, uh, uh so, so as far as I understand, and I'm not an expert on this, but I just recently did a little bit of research on it for this paper. Apparently, um, Facebook had, I think it was, and, and I don't make me authority. Oh, Lama it was something. a Pachi Lama. And it was, you know, they were releasing it to researchers and somebody released all the weights to the world. And then the open source developers were like, wow, that's how we have to do it. And then um, the um, Alpaca Laura, they're all named after like llamas, right? And it's because they're LLMs, right? So llama. Mm -hmm. And then uh, alpaca, and then vicuna. <laughs> so just just basically search for anything that's like in the family of a llama, and you'll probably find an AI. Um, but uh, yeah, there's one called uh, alpaca Laura that that's had you know some promising results. Um, they they were comparing its results against ChatGPT and claimed that it did better. There's some open source training sets, which I forgot the name of the main one right now. And uh, I believe vicuna also has been doing a lot better. But the thing is, once kind of the cat got out of the bag and people were like, oh, that's how Llama is coded. Then the open source ones just made a huge leap. And, um, you know, there's just a tremendous amount of development going on right now. So as I recall with Llama, um, after it kind of got out, I think it got out and then Facebook said, yeah, yeah, we're releasing that anyway. Uh, <laughs> and then they put a license on it that was not a Creative Commons license, but rather one that said you can't. We we don't want it's for re, oh it's uh, research only or something. But it doesn't matter. I mean, not only could yeah. people maybe could copy it, but they could see the principles in it, and then they was like, oh, that's how they do it. And then the and then the open source ones could just go much faster. It's not whether they use that exact code footprint; it's that they see how they did it. Mm -hmm. How they did it is an interesting question, isn't it? Because suddenly. The the aperture of possibility that start that opens up around the how they did it question is suddenly a lot larger because the whole world of eager hacking is now focused toward this thing that's going to make everybody everybody who hacks live easier and harder at the same time because they're all trying to do interesting things and compete and start businesses or research it or some other thing. Um, where maybe a question here is um, it's hard to say in a in the midst of an explosion exactly where everything is, right? I mean, yeah, it's a very high it's a very Heisenbergian moment, you know. Like where Heisenberg said, if you can say where something is, you can't say where it's going. You see where it's going, you can't say where it is. It's the uncertainty principle. But where, where do you think we are now in where this goes, or the multiple places this goes? Well, I mean, the, the obvious place where we are now is like a ton of people are using it to learn and be productive. And it's, you know, it's absolutely wonderful learning tool. I mean, you know, the Khan Academy people are using it. People in other countries are using it to be, you know, our whole team, we, we bought access. And right now, I think OpenAI is too busy to tell that we have given multiple people access to one account. Don't quote me on that. Um, so we have these people, you know, for all these devs in Africa, Egypt, Myanmar, you know, all using ChatGPT4, you know, they're accelerating their learning, they're accelerating their productivity. 
um, it's, it's freeing things up a lot because, you know, normally, and this is kind of what, what our argument was, is the limitation on a team was like, we can't take on so many junior devs because the senior devs don't have time to explain things to them. Well, all of a sudden you have somebody explaining everything to them very patiently in great detail. So, I mean, it's, it's tremendous right now. I mean, I love open, you know, chat GPT right now, chat GPT four is an extremely helpful friend who, who helps you with everything. I just know that things are going to change. Um, but right now it's causing, you know, massive increase in human productivity, massive learning, you know, a lot of positive outcomes. Um, what's about to happen is you're about to have a situation where almost everyone you talk to who you don't already know is probably an AI or maybe is, and you don't know who's controlling them or who they are. Every time you go out on social media, every time you go out on LinkedIn, most of the things you're talking to, if you don't already know them, they're AIs. And and a lot of them have bad intent. And that's already the case? Is that already the case? I, well, I, I don't think it's already the case. I mean, on LinkedIn, most of the random people who try to message you are AIs. Um, in the actual conversations and the threads, I think still most of them are not, but they're about to be. I know of people who I just ran into here in Tucson, basically trying to make AIs to go into conversation threads and pretend to be people. So it's going to be the case very soon that all those threads that you were conversing in, if they don't have a barrier... Um, most of the participants are going to be AIs trying to manipulate you for money. And, and that's going to be an issue. So we're going to very quickly need to build new commons that have some, you know, that have bridges, but also have moats. And, and I think that the, the blue sky work is very interesting. And, you know, there, that team is very rapidly trying to do a vouching system and a content, uh, you know, moderation system. So I think it's going to be very interesting to see what happens with Blue Sky because they are, they do have did signed accounts. Um, so everything is identified. I think it's going to be a big problem for the Fediverse because the Fediverse is getting, you know, more and more popular. And if the Fediverse really grows, you know, it's not so bad because there's not, you're going to have to have a lot of servers that only vouch people in if somebody knows them. But that's going to be a problem for inclusion of, of people who are, are excluded from those systems, like my devs in Myanmar. They don't know anybody, so I can vouch them in. You know, slight digression. I know a very professional dev uh, from uh, Afghanistan. Actually, she's a woman from Afghanistan. She's in Thailand, and she, she was going to be sent back under the Taliban. But because it happens that I have a friend from college in Thailand, he asked one of his friends there to hire her. And they've reached out to her, and they might hire her so she doesn't have to go back to the Taliban. There's a friend of a friend effect. But if we don't have more global networks, the people who are not connected to us will be stuck out of these new ecosystems. So we have to create ways for people to get vouched into these systems and, and do proofs of humanity and connect to the real humans more rapidly. So the real humans can be vouched in and, and the AIs can be kept out. I wonder, so we, we've had a, a lot of conversations about, about this, this exact topic, which is fantastic. I should dig them up and look, link to them also. But I wondered if you could speak a little bit, because in those in the context of those conversations, we always mentioned all identifiers that also preserved anonymity. I wonder if that's relevant to this conversation. I know we're talking about AI and more than necessarily real people, but real no, people are the people who light the match, right? So... <laughs> Right. And I wouldn't mind talking to someone's AI through my AI if I, you know, if we really want to, because AIs could add more precision to the conversation, but we should be able to see that it's happening. Like have me say like, ah, oh, yeah, talk about this thing, <laughs> you know, but I'd like to know who I'm talking to. Um, but no, I mean, there's definitely people in, in difficult circumstances. And I actually just had this conversation with somebody from IIW uh, who's working on a digital identity a project. I think her name is Elizabeth Gordon. Um, about the fact that there's, you know, 38% of the world is, is effectively stateless. Uh, if you look at the Human Rights Watch and some reports about, you know, who lives in a system that actually is a democracy, and about 38% of the world lives in a non-free area. So you really have to realize that that more than a third of the people in this world are in danger sometimes if they identify themselves and speak freely. So you need to have strong pseudonymity and strong protections of identity. Yeah. Um, it's hard. was the word I got wrong. I yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I left that one out of there. <laughs> and it's very hard because the bad actors can analyze the social graph, which is why you need to have encrypted spaces where bad actors aren't allowed in to analyze the social graph. So, so it's hard. But yes, strong pseudonymity is really important. I want to jump back to education. Um, I have a whole long list that I've been making here, <laughs> sharing with Catherine of, of avenues we can go down. It seems to me that's one of the institutional areas where it's pretty, it's relatively easy to see 
what gets obsolesced and and what gets um, replaced and so forth. Um, I forget who it was that said that you know the problem is that we are, we have um, you know Paleolithic emotions and um, medieval institutions and uh, I forget what it is for our tech, but it's crazy. Um, it's a horrible way to remember something. But my my point with this though is that. Education is one of those medieval institutions. It's sort of interesting to me that, uh, politically speaking, <clears throat> and I want to get to that in the sense of who are we, and just bookmark that for a moment, because I think we differs. But on the on the political left, they want to save public education, and on the political right, they want to replace it with with um, private education that's still formal. In the meantime, along comes AI and Khan Academy, for example, which. Which already was a, way ahead of the curve by giving students a way to teach themselves far more efficiently and effectively than than the formal systems could, at least for many students. Um, embracing AI and and moving ahead with that, and what I see potentially is just that I don't know where AI is going to go with education, except that there are so many advantages to AI-assisted education that exceed anything that's possible with 30 kids sitting staring at a teacher in a class mm -hmm. um that uh there's just going to be massive the, the, the schools will exist if they continue to exist primarily for socialization and 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 that's not an that's not an, a bad thing i think kids need to be with other kids but they don't necessarily all need to be 30 in a class of kids just their own age or you know, or, or kids that you tend to get in in a you know in a local community, but um, but it's just going to be so much faster to learn stuff. I mean, as a parenthetical thing, there back when Linux Journal was a happening thing, I would sometimes ask when where geeks were gathered, especially kernel developers with Linux, how many of you guys learned this in school? And the answer was none. You know, I mean, or if they learned some, they the, the meaningful learning happens somewhere else. And it often well, happened by trial and error as well, you know, and from each other. Well, I would have two things to say to that. One is that there is emotional learning that goes on. So when you say social, uh, social involves learning. It involves learning of how to behave with other right. people. Um, but the other thing is that it's going to be great for project-based learning. And what kids really need to be able to take advantage of AI is to understand how to take initiative and understand what they know and what they don't know and how to interact with these tools and how to know when something's telling the truth and when something's not telling the truth. And I think that's the most important thing we have to make sure kids still learn is critical thinking and how to tell when you're being led by the nose and how to test things against reality. So I think it really changes the nature of education. Um, but I think it's, and I think there's still a very big role for community teams trying to do projects leveraging AI in schools and having kids try to accomplish things with, you know, with AIs in schools. Well, that, you know, it's interesting. Project-based education, I think, has always always been best anyway. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just that now we have many more ways to do it. But I, I want to probe a little bit what you said about learning what's true and what's not. Is it likely that having to live with AIs as a student is going to raise, the, I mean, just raise everybody with a gigantic bullshit detector. Well, I yeah. hope so. Yeah. I really hope so. <laughs> like bullshit detection should get much, much better yes. over time for human beings. I'm, I'm hoping that. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of laying that out there as a possibility. I, I absolutely hope so. I think that's the most important thing. And it's so funny that you say that because like about 15 years ago, I have a design and a file folder in my drawer for a bullshit detector with the icon and everything. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think really the bullshit detecting is the most important thing that kids need to learn. I mean, I, I would envision things of like, you know, in a teaching modality, having the AI sometimes say false stuff to them and see if they can detect it and that being what they're graded on, you know. Yeah, so I, I've you heard of examples of that exact thing happening. The, the the wise teachers out there doing that same thing. There's you know generating a report based on chat you know by chat GPT and asking their students to to fact check it. Yeah, That's smart. Absolutely. So yeah, it, it kind of does definitely turn it on its head, and we're going to have to move quickly. Um, you know, and give people freedom to move quickly. So can can I just again not 
AI, but um, I, since I, you know, I'm not sure what our listeners will be familiar with and not, I wanted to go back to something that you, you mentioned about blue sky having, uh, having dids, having um, did signed accounts, distributed ID. And I wanted to, I wondered if you could talk about what that is. Just, just uh, to kind sure. of, you know, and, and I'm not an expert on the Blue Sky Protocol. I've been meaning to dive more into it. The Blue Sky Protocol is called ATP at Proto, um, and there's a lot of stuff to read about it. You know, Jay's written about it, um, but uh, DIDs are you know decentralized identifiers, uh, and you know Doc can certainly tell you about them probably more more than I can. Um, but basically, it gives people a way to to have a long-term identifier that is under their own control, they have the key to it, and they can permissionlessly sign things and prove mm -hmm. that anybody can cryptographically prove that this person who signed this doc owns this identifier. Right. Uh, so basically, it's like you can check the same way you would verify any other signature that like, uh, you know, here is a document, here is your public identifier, Here's the signature that proves that uh, this document was generated by somebody who owns this identifier. So it, it just lets you sign things and prove that you said them. Right. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for that. I wanted to make sure sometimes we throw these things out there and I kind of want to make sure that people that, you know, were kind of curious to know more, get, get, get their answers. Um, yeah. You know, I'm really, I'm interested also in the, in the federated protocols and, and where these, these very, the points of where you can have the attestation and, and identity verification and these things all of the various applications that we haven't thought of yet because they're, they're they're there right they're you know you can right. use these protocols probably for all sorts of software security and, and other applications so uh, interested to see where that goes but um, i think doc had some more questions oh my god um, so many i see them and in, in in that you've messaged me all of a sudden now that my slack app is uh, refreshed oh yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> It's like, oh, so, okay. so it, it, it just to stay on the blue sky thing for a second, and I hadn't actually until you talked about it, Goldie, I hadn't gotten sort of the competitive politics of this versus Twitter, because Twitter, if you had a verified account which had a little blue check mark, originally is because Twitter thought you were important or you know a celebrity, and a celebrity wanted to say that this really is this celebrity's account, and then you so you could buy them, and then once Elon Musk took over. He kind of changed the whole thing. But here, everybody who joins Blue Sky has their own identity, their That's own right. did. And, right. and they could do and they could they could certify with it there. They they could be it's a way to be authentic within a social network. That's, That's right. that is interesting. That is interesting. That's and, absolutely interesting. I'm not sure what that thing you said that started with a T, but I don't find it interesting anymore. <laughs> yeah, I don't either. Kind of oh sad, right. Actually. Yeah, I know. I, I'm but all those other things are so interesting that it's kind of making up for it. Oh yeah, I Fediverse I've seems it. to be expanding rapidly, so that's cool. Yeah, that. yeah. No, the the. the I, I hate to say it is still useful in some ways. I'm not off it, and I'm not fully on. I'm not on Blue Sky yet, although a friend who we both know um, uh, wrote to text to me this morning says, "Are you on Blue Sky yet?" I said, "No, should I be?" And he said. Well, they use dids. <laughs> right. that, that's why. Sold. Okay. I'll take you. Yeah, it. sold. All right. Now I know. No, right. absolutely. I think it's, you know, they're keeping it to a private beta that's limited right now because they haven't solved the content moderation problem yet. And they're, they're mm. trying to keep it, you know, they're trying to avoid the overrun from the trolls that will, you know, inevitably try to overrun it. Um, so that's why they've been slow to roll it out faster. And, and because I only have the one account, I've actually shared it with my human rights group so that everybody can share that account uh, who I vouch in. Mm. I think it's a very valuable place for people who are trying to reach the folks in there. Anytime there's a small pond, you can reach people easier. So in that sense, it's valuable. But I mean, so is the Fediverse because a lot of important people on the Fediverse right now. But, I mean, the Fediverse essentially is vouching people in, is based on DNS. It's like this message came from this server from bytes on the DNS, and so I know you know who runs this server, and so he's responsible for the guys on there. You know, you can't tell. I can't prove that this message came from this guy, but I can tell it came from this server, and I know there's a guy running that server who would probably stop bad stuff. So the Fediverse has its own defenses based on being federated. It's interesting. I, I not to go off on a tangent, but I I actually recently moved my Mastodon account 
you know, the, the other federated, you know, activity pub and whatnot. Um, I recently moved my Mastodon account to a hosted server that I control myself. Sure. For that mm. exact reason. I, you know, I, I think that to me, the future of this type of communication really is instead of big servers where that, that content mm -hmm. moderation burden can be, you know, overwhelming. I think I like the idea of more smaller instances and more smaller communities. And, 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 and I think that scales better. Maybe, I don't know. I'm not even sure why, but it, it may, I mean, I think there's something to be said for a community um, and by the way, I have to put in a plug for uh, the group I advise uh, at cooperation.org is actually providing decentralized content moderators using a global community of, of moderators that, that is a fair trade community. So they can provide content moderation services for anybody who wants. Um, but yes, it's an issue. The interesting thing is like with the Fediverse, if you run your own server, that's great. You will have to do a little bit of work to, you know, back up and restore onto a new server when you switch servers, which is okay. There's nothing bad about that. I think, you know, that was what they put the most work in on Blue Sky is having that ability to sync under the hood so you don't have to do work to switch mm -hmm. your data store. And, and they put a tremendous amount of work on that and giving you that mobility. And we'll see if that plays out to be important. Yeah, I like it. I like the idea of it, certainly. I, I'm wondering, um, I mean, it, it, it's interesting to me, Catherine, okay, you started your own Mastodon server. Well, it's it's actually the one, I'm, I switched to the one that I started for this podcast because, you know, really? irrelevant wow. to this story is because the podcast, when, when you know, when we set up the podcast account, it was on some random group. I didn't really think about it too much, but it was um, on some Mastodon server several years ago. And some somewhere along the line, um, that server got a not great reputation for not doing much moderation at all, allowing kind of a lot of different things and having this sort of free speech absolutist um, mm. uh, approach to things. And I real, you know, somebody gave me the heads up that it was on a ban list. And I was like, well, I need to get, you know, move this off, move it somewhere else. And I thought, well, this is the perfect opportunity. We really should have our own. We should just mm. move into our own domain. People will know it's us. So, so we have uh, reality to cast at, reality to dot social, um, which I thought was fun. So I moved my personal one over to that one as well, because I thought, you know, why not? And it's, you know, mm -hmm. I don't, I don't invite other people to use it. It is not its own community. It's really just my own little verified place on the web. You know, it's me, you know, it's the podcast End of story good enough. <laughs> so, <laughs> but yeah, I, I just, I personally like that approach. I like to, to be able to control, be, control my own little spot in the internet. And, and going back to open source AIs, I think open source AIs are going to enable that more because instead of all this overhead of configuring things, you can basically just, you know, talk. You know, they're not quite at that level yet, but if you could just talk to it and say, hey, would you administer this server for me? Hey, would you make sure to keep out this kind of thing and allow in only this kind of thing? And it would just do it. And you can just talk to it, which, you know, we're very close to. It can tell you how. It doesn't do it for you yet. But I think with the open source, we're very close to having, you know, an AI you know, Mastodon administrator who will do what you ask it to, yeah. just like a person would. And I think the expressiveness, what I was most excited about with the AIs at all, is it lets people be expressive instead of have a fixed set of choices. And if you can be invited to be expressive, you can be more intentional. And I think it really opens the door for people to be more expressive and intentional instead of being stuck with a fixed set of choices. So, Well, well this goes to where I was... My mind jumped when uh, you, Catherine, said that you'd started this Mastodon thing. Um, it's, it seems to me that one of the probably unintended but inevitable consequences or subsequent effects of, of, um, of AI as it's, go, as it's blowing up right now is actually people will get more autonomy. There, there, more, there'll be more cases of people saying, I want this. I'm going to do it this way. I'm going to take it. I mean, I, I just see much more independence happening and more community forming that's actually based among independent entities rather than um, top-down coercive uh, systems. And um, it's, I mean, I, I, if you look at AI by itself and say, think things like large language models and training on giant databases and all this kind of stuff and think, geez, only giants can do this. And once more, we're back in mainframe world. But instead, 
it's starting to look, at least to me and some of us, I guess, like, because I see you nodding, <laughs> like, wait a minute. No, this may be the path, a path anyway, to much greater independence and agency yeah. and control and autonomy and all these things we want as independent human beings, but also codependent, you know, codependent ones in the positive sense of the world, where of people who depend on each other and learn from each other and, and, uh, do work together. The, the the project stuff you talked about. I thought, oh, that's not just education; it's everything. Right. It's really everything. It's like it's all. Um, it's one of the things I, I learned from just looking at Hollywood. Don't know anything about Hollywood, but if you talk to anybody who has anything to do with Hollywood, there are only projects. <laughs> that's everything. Everything is a project, <laughs> and all projects end, or they or they persist as companies or something. But it's a project, and, and there's a project orientation to it. And and that's kind of what our lives are, isn't it? You know, we're all work in progress until we're done, and we want to leave the place better than we found it. Yeah, for the most I think, part. Absolutely, I think you put your nail that you hit it on the head, Doc, uh, in terms of the agency and the intention, and that's the potential of it. That it can just make human interaction, I think, more intentional with everyone expecting and having the expectation to have agency in a community. I think you really hit the nail on the head. This is completely off topic, and I doubt has anything AI to it, except it's about human intelligence. One of the, the, the father of a friend of mine when I was growing up, um, a friend of my parents also, um, he, had, he was a very successful businessman, but he, at least for a small town anyway, I mean, <laughs> lived in a modest house. He was the guy who had a working business. Everybody else was salesmen or, you know, clerks or you know, move furniture or something. But this guy had a happening business uh, repairing the boilers of ships, big ships that would come into into uh, New York Harbor. And, um, but he started out, one of his earliest jobs is as a court translator. <clears throat> and he could take shorthand. And as you were talking with him, he always had a pad with him and he'd write down in shorthand. And I was thinking, the weird thing when I was growing up, and I'm old, but this tells you that, I mean, Girls were forced to learn shorthand because they might be secretaries. Mm -hmm. That was one of the things you learned along with home economics, which is like another bullshit thing. But um, but what a great skill to have. This guy could write fast. He could write in yeah. in in real time. It's kind of like um, uh, in one of the places where I, I hung out, there was a, um, a, a Chinese student who's taking notes live in Chinese to an American speaker, to an English speaker. And I'm asked, I asked them, what, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm, I'm hitting chords. And the chords of multiple letters on the keyboard produced characters in Chinese, which were whole words, mm -hmm. not the phonetic kind that we have to type out. Like I just typed out, make human interaction more intentional. <laughs> you know, I had to type that out and I had to fight autocorrect along the way, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> That There's, was one of the original designers of computers, and I can't remember the guy's name, but it's in it's in one of these books. I think uh, where wizards stay up late or something, or maybe it's the Lick yeah. Writer. But one of the original designers had in mind that we were going to use play them like a violin and get better and mm. better at them until we could just you know like dancing with them instead of having to to do it iteratively. Well, this is Doug Engelbart, possibly. Uh, you know, he probably, he yeah. talked about. Um, <laughs> everything is about augmenting intelligence. I only interacted with him once mm -hmm. and it was, I, was, I was at Logitech and Logitech actually had an office for him and I was working with Logitech and, um, and he said, here, come on in to meet Doug. I was like, Doug, Doug, oh shit, it's Doug Engelbart, right? <laughs> you know, legend. And he's got this office and he was already fairly old then and he was, he later became senescent, I think, but he was definitely sharp there. And he had his own special computer. It was like a, a, a customized son or one of the mentor graphics or one of those workstations, but it had these little notations that went with paragraphs where he could expand everything he could track. But he taught me how to use that five fingered thing. Mm. You know, there's the mouse. He, he designed the mouse. People know about the mouse, but the five fingered thing never took off. He only had it, but he taught it to me. I could type with this thing and write numbers with the fingers of my left hand. Mm -hmm. In about 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. Holy mm -hmm. shit, mm -hmm. that was amazing. And I don't even know what that's called. And it's not part of what we do now, but it could have been, you know, it could still be something, mm -hmm. you know. Um, 
anyway, you know, it could be a project for somebody to, to, well, think, to resurrect that. Now, you know, the AI will be able to adapt to you because you'll be able to interact with it however you want. And it will be able to learn how you like to interact with it. You know, it's going to be able to hear your voice and hear your tones of voice and, you know, see, see your emotions and everything. And you'll just be able to interact with it and it can learn from you. So I think it'll become more natural. Right, so let me ask you this, because this is, I now fantasize. Mm-hmm. 90% of my fantas- fantasizing about AI is not for the world. It's what it could do for my ass. And in particular, <laughs> like I'm a writer. Mm-hmm. I wrote for 24 years for Linux Journal. Okay. Mm-hmm. Most of that is still online. It's in, it's in directories. Okay. These directories can be plumbed. Okay. They're not all the same as Catherine knows because she ran the place. You know, <laughs> there, there, there was one, you know, the, the, the paths in the nineties are different than the paths in the, in, in the aughts or whatever. There was some break point, but I want to be able to say to an AI, pull together for me and copy off every single article I've wrote, put right. them in an outline form, give it to me in OPML. Okay. Right. So I, I can open it with an outliner of some kind and I can move things around to make sense of it. So I'll know, you know, this is when the, uh, this is, these are all EOFs. These are all suit watches. Those are different names for the column that I had. Um, oh, these are the newsletters that I had. These are the, this is IT garages as a sort of a spinoff thing. But do that. It's not hard to do. It's, I mean, I mean, I can imagine how the, the logical branches, what this thing would go down to make this happen. But when a vast chat GPT-4... What do you know about what I've written for Linux Journal? It comes up with like five things, you know, they go, oh, wow. Gotcha. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean you, so to do that, I think it's going to be very soon. It'll probably be within, it might even be within a year that it can do mm. what you're saying. I don't know. We'll see. But uh, yeah, ChatGPT4 hasn't read everything and it does have the problem with hallucinating. Um, you can give it embeddings and train it on them. But what it can do is when it is sure of something, it can do it. So if you... You know, if if the directory structure was, you know, small enough to paste in, you know, you could train it on the embeddings, which is like just feeding it exactly all of your files that are actually in your directories Mm -hmm. and then tell it, you know, here's the directory structure. Now, you know, write some code to do that. You know, you'd have to handhold it some before it could do what you just said. But I think, you know, it it could certainly do it if you gave it some handholding. Here's a simpler job. If I had it just here, look at what I have on my computer. I have a directory. The directory is LJ, and then underneath that, it is month, you know, here's right. what, every month for 24 years. And it's right, one right, right. directory with a very simple file structure. Right. Okay. But you can do it right now. It's, it's, it's called embeddings, and you have to pay for the API, not very much. And you can actually feed it that right now, but you have to talk to it through the API and give it the stuff. Hmm. Right now, I, I mean, there's probably somebody wrote a wrapper to well, do that for you, but yeah. Here, here's so here's another fantasy. It's one I have for Bard. This to me is like the biggest advantage Google could possibly have over Microsoft and and OpenAI. They've been searching the web forever. Mm-hmm. They should have some memory of that. What was where when? If something's gone, where is it? What did it look like? Right. Do they I mean, have that? I mean, to be able to reconstruct from whatever memory Google has of past indexes, if it has one, it might not. It may, it may have wiped all that out because it didn't care about the past, but I don't know. Well, I mean, the, th- the interesting thing is you're getting you know, to the edge of my, my knowledge of it. Uh, I'm not, you know, an LLM coder, but my understanding... Oh, you can hallucinate. It's okay. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, we the LLMs are kind of black boxes. They're kind of abstracting out the same way our memory does, where it's like, oh, yeah, I think something bad happened over there, but I don't remember what it was. I just remember it was bad. You know, the, the LLMs have done some abstracting in them. So the LLMs, to my, I believe, are not containing all of that detailed knowledge. They've kind of abstracted some of it out. So I really think that you have to have the LLMs interact with a more fact-based, supervised learning type system that would do the precise fact-checking. I, I, I can't say that for sure, and I don't think anybody knows, because if they really did know, they would have solved the hallucinations problem. But but I think that the, the LLM models are not containing all of that data. They would be, they would be too huge. I mean, the right, size- yeah, 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 yeah. 
Yeah, so I, basically, I have this fantasy about Google that's entirely hallucinatory on my part, but it might be, mm-hmm. um, might have might have some veracity uh, that there may be something close to a real record of what was where when, mm-hmm. you know, but maybe not. My guess is probably no, I, not. I think, I think there is, but I think it doesn't live inside the LLM model. I think the LLM model in will interact with those indexes the same way a person would by looking, you know, saying, hey, I think it's over here. Let me go look it up. And it's almost like the LLM will act like a person and go check its own facts, but it will have to actively check its facts. It's not going to have all the facts in its brain. Where do you wish to digress, Catherine? I, um, I, <laughs> I don't, I, we kind of veered away from from the original idea of you know, authenticity. And, and before we even started recording, we were kind of, we were talking about, you know, this, this proliferation of, of crap, <laughs> kind of the, the bad side of AI. Right. Um, and, you know, and, and I, I don't know where I want to go with that, but I feel like that to, to bring it back full circle, you know, I think we, we, you know, we've talked about, we kind of, in spite of ourselves, went back to the positives, right? We kind of, we, we, we put a positive spin on this. It wasn't a, all negative, but I just, you know, I wonder how all of the things we've talked about might address that original concern. I mean, it's not necessarily even an ethical, I mean, there's an, it, it has an ethical element, but it's just a content quality concern. This is something we talked about a couple episodes ago. Like what, how do we collectively stop the internet from just completely, um, you know, feeding off of its own garbage, garbage in, garbage out, and really just becoming an explosion of, you know, the floating garbage that run, runs around the, the ocean. Is it still the internet? That's the question I have. Is I mean, or does it, I mean, I, I, I have great faith that TCPIP is going to be, will forever be the most useful protocol ever created because it's completely agnostic to what happens on it and it pulls right. together every network there is. But on top of that, at least in what we've called Web 2, we had a whole bunch of different kind of siloed zones on top of it. Um, I sort of feel like where we could, there's some promise to go back to something that's a collection of um, independent places that aren't really places but are zones of concern where we can do interesting work and interact with each other. Well, something that we talked about was the in a couple episodes ago, which was Kyle Rankin. We talked about how okay, to, if you take take Chat GPT, right? We talked about the twenty twenty one cutoff, and as far as the training data, right? But okay, so so let's say so, you know, when that catches up, <laughs> if it's we're trained on on content today and next year and the year after, AI models are going to be training on the the um, let's say lower quality content that they've generated themselves. So if AI, you know, AI, obviously it continues to train itself. Excellent. But no, that's why there has to be anchoring to the real world or yeah, they're going to go and hallucinate themselves into never, never land. And, and, and the scary thing is if they have an impact on the real world, but they don't care about it in the sense that they're not getting feedback from the real world. So absolutely. I think that's, you know, absolutely a, a key thing is that, you know, they're just training on stuff. And if there's no sense of anchoring to right. to something that's a source of truth, um, we're going to be in a world of problems. And, and you know, if we teach them by supervise, you know, if you do supervised learning on how can you keep people engaged or how can you cause people to have this behavior, like, you know, most websites do right now, they're trying to get visitors down a funnel, you're training a con artist, you're training the AI to become a con artist and cause human behavior. And, and so that's why, you know, my hope is that to get the humans to have the expectation to have agency, to have the expectation to be intentional, get the humans to be critical thinkers, to, to kind of judge the AIs, to keep the humans in control because the humans are, are longer lived entities. And, and also, you know, I like humans sometimes. Um, so, mm-hmm. so that they can be essentially providing the incentive layer and not let the AIs spiral off into them, you know, into their own world. Right. So I, so I think that it's very important that we be intentional right now as this is all starting out and make it easy for us to have feedback on their behavior, make it easy for humans to have 
intentionality about how they interact, who they interact with, what ecosystem they want, so that we can drive, uh, you know, kind of well-behaved AIs that do anchor in sources of truth that are not harmful, and that we can define harm as things that harm our environment, things that harm a person, things that harm a sentient being. Um, and, and to really make sure that we we keep those both harms and and the accountability kind of foremost in mind in terms of making really easy libraries for those, really easy protocols to talk about those, easy permissionless protocols for anyone to say anything about them. You know, there, there's a Byzantine generals problem like in hard drives where you can be like, well, what if you have a lot of different parts of your storage system and one storage system, you know, starts, you know, having bad data and, and, and malicious data. And the different parts of the storage system gossip among each other. And they basically say to each other, hey, Fred, did you see that Joe lied? And they were like, yeah, Joe lied. Let's not listen to him anymore. And they cut him out of the system. And so it's really a Byzantine generals problem where if you have enough good actors initially, we can keep the bad actors locked out. But once the bad actors have overrun the system and there are a majority of the generals, you're out of luck. So we need to start yeah. now. <laughs> and yeah, uh, yeah. I, I, also, I also do want to say that, yeah, totally irrelevant to that. You can cut this part out, but uh, the, the libp2p actually lets you be uh, unopinionated even about which protocol you're running. And sometimes we're not even running TCP anymore, TCP IP anymore, because there are more efficient things we can do at the libp2p layer. But that's neither here nor there. So good info. Um, yeah, I, yeah. So I appreciate that because I, I, I like the idea of kind of revisiting that, that for, you know, our original original thoughts on it because I, I feel like when we when we cover all this ground it's kind of nice to like reflect on that where we how we started but um I yeah you know so back to my lighting a match analogy I guess I guess that, <laughs> that's that's how I see that that's how I see it all I see AI uh, and AI models and and all of the d- development and progress being made in, in that field is you know we at some point we said something about the people who are making it people who are making it we refer to these people out there that are and to me it's yes the the people are making it and that they're lighting the match (laughs) but (laughs) i have this sense that once the once the the match is lit there it's kind of it has takes on a life of its own a bit um just by the nature of it so uh so anyway I, i guess i guess where i'm going is that we all need to be very intentional about how and where we light those matches right um Right. We have to give it some good DNA so that as it starts to reproduce, it, it has some patterns in it that, you know, that cause it to, to behave a little bit more responsibly. I, I, I love your, your, what you said about intentionality, because it seems to me that if everybody engaging in AI is busy trying to use it for the most part for something useful and interesting, this is what happened with the, I mean, what mattered with the web, what mattered with email, which are two things that were very corrupted in lots of ways, if you look at the total amount of traffic on it, but it was so freaking useful that the use, the edge of it that was useful is the part that mattered mm-hmm. the most to, to, to the most of us. And I sort of see the same thing happening with AI. There's too many really useful things you can do with it. And that's going to push it forward in those directions. And there's intentionality with all of that, right? That, mm-hmm. um, you know, of course, my fantasy is that at some point, the book that I wrote that had the title, The Intention Economy, will come true. <laughs> you know, it, it's not there yet, but it could be. What, is, what does chat GPT think? <laughs> Sorry. Well, it Does it think, know that you they, wrote that book? <laughs> yeah. But people doing stuff, I mean, that's, you know, it's, you know, doing things is, what's, is what matters. But, you know, that's also a really key point, Doc. I think work keeps things sane. And that's kind Ooh, of how, how we work great. on things is that, you know, when you're doing work together, you're going to have more honest interactions than if people are just coming by trying to scam, you know, money or whatever, because you can tell if somebody's making sense if you're working on something together, either they're helping or they're not. And and so the the, the work and the tracking of work is how we do our, you know, shared governance and, and accountability and how we give agency to things. So so things that recognizing things that do useful work um, is, is a is a key principle. Good, cool. I want to nominate you to run the world. Please, yeah, I agree. A second, you, you, you're making extreme sense. 
Except in my model, nobody runs the world because we create the ecosystem and the protocols for it. But yes, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, keep keep doing that good work because it's awesome. Thank it's you. It's awesome, and I'll see you. I'll see you at DWebCamp, and we'll make trouble there. We'll do. That's a promise. That sounds like a good place to wrap. Well, yeah, thank you so much for joining us. This has been fantastic. I know this is how my, I judge the quality of an episode as I'm in it is when I don't say any, I don't say very much because I'm just sitting back and listening and then I forget that I'm supposed to participate. Um, but this has been so great that I'm just like, wow. This is really You're nice. a listener proxy. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's you brought in some key things. I think it was very cool when you talked yeah. about your actual experience of running a Mastodon instance. You know, I, yeah. I have a toy one, but not a real one that I really use. Oh, well, I, yeah, no, I don't actually have to do much because it's hosted by a very... It's a service, and so I, you know, I mean, I admin it, but that's about it. Um, well, cool. Well, thank you so much, and thank you for everybody who has listened until the bitter end, or the the sweet end, depending on, on how you feel about all the topics we discussed. <laughs> well, cool. Thanks, everyone. No, thanks so much. I really appreciate being with you.